Upon my death, what happens to an author's unfinished work? And it was written by a man who's an author himself, pretty prolific author, and he explored the fairly frequent phenomenon of what happens when an author, on his passing, leaves behind a catalog of unfinished work. And he kind of explored that a little bit and just made the point that it's just a very iffy thing. That when an author uh, creates something, uh, leaves it unfinished, unfinished for another author to take it up and try, and try and add to it or to try and complete it in any way. It's just an iffy thing when you see one author's voice get added to another author. And what you just heard Jeff sing was the first verse of a hymn that's written by two different people. The, the first and the fourth verse were written by Charles Wesley, the uh, great hymn writer of the Wesley family in the 1700s. And the second and the third verse were written by a man named Mark Hunt in the late 1970s. And so what's impressive, I think, one of the things that's impressive about this hymn is that you have two different authors separated by two different centuries living in vastly different worlds, and yet they have assembled a hymn that accomplishes what appears to be a very singular voice. And I think if we were to go back in time and talk to these guys, I think one of the things they would say to us is that they were listening to another voice. The voice of the prophet Isaiah. Speaking God's promises to his people, echoing throughout history. And that's the voice we're going to listen to this morning and for the next few weeks. And we'll pick up in Isaiah chapter 9, and I'll read the the first seven verses for you. Hear the word of the Lord. But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. You have multiplied the nations, you have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulders, and his name shall be called 
wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, I pray that you would help us to hear these words, that just as they were proclaimed to your people centuries ago, I pray that we would hear them wash over us, and that we would hear the hope, the burden of hope, and that it would move us, help us to hear what it is you'd have us hear this morning. And Lord, I pray that you would help me to serve these people well and to honor you with what I say. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so about eight years ago, there was a story uh, surfaced of a, of a man, a 31-year-old man, 31-year-old executive living in Philadelphia, who decided all of a sudden that he wanted to be a treasure hunter. Uh, and so he put his career, what seemed like a pretty significant career, on hold when he saw a segment on TV uh, that described a millionaire art collector living in Santa Fe who had uh, put into a lockbox uh, a lot of like gold coins and jewelry and gems and things like that. He just kind of put it in and buried it somewhere in the Rockies. And so he set about trying to find out where this guy buried his treasure. And uh, he, he saw that there were like cryptic clues that were in a book that this art collector had written. And so he studied that and he studied a number of other things, put some real work into it and decided he knew where this thing was. He, he kind of was able to put a pinpoint on a map in the Rockies of where he thought this guy might have buried his treasure. And so he, he left and he flew out west and he rented a car and he drove up to a trailhead and he began to hike toward where he thought he might find uh, this lockbox. And about 15 minutes into the hike, he came across an elderly couple who warned him. He said, uh, they said, they're, they're bears. They're, we saw some bear cubs along the way. Uh, so be careful because bear cubs always mean that there's a mama bear, right? And, but undeterred, uh, burdened with hope, he kept going and, uh, until he started to hear a growl. And he said, this is mama bear. And he hid and he said he hi- started hyperventilating. Like he became so afraid of the danger uh, that he began hyperventilating and, uh, and hid for as long as he could until he felt like it was safe to come out. And then he said he sprinted back to his rental car and his joy of chasing treasure for the rest of his life was done. (laughs) That fear, can't blame him. Fear was real and the fear was close. But his fear squeezed out his hope. And that happens, that's so easy for us, isn't it? It's a simple equation in a lot of ways. Just how easy it is the fear of things we don't know, the fear of what might happen if we try, the fear of the undetermined can squeeze out hope. Sometimes it's hard to live with hope. Sometimes it feels easier to build a conventional life unburdened by hope. But here's the thing about hope. It's what animates us. It's the thing that makes us come alive. 
The hope of a better tomorrow, in, in a lot of ways, is the thing that can help us get out of bed in the morning. And what Isaiah is doing in this passage is he is speaking hope. He's making a case for hope to a bunch of people who are living in very dark and difficult times. And what he does for them is he builds the case for hope in order that they might be sustained and encouraged. I see three things in this passage. One is that you see him offer the promise of hope. And then what we're going to see is we're going to see a vision of hope. And then finally, he's going to describe for us the very means of our hope. Promise, vision, means. First, the whole thing starts with the promise of hope. If you see this in here, the call to hope begins with an acknowledgement of their present experience. Isaiah is very honest. And I think you'll find the Bible is just very honest about what the world looks like. And he describes it in verse 1. He's talking to people who are in anguish. And in verse 2, he describes people who are walking in darkness. It goes further and it says that they are walking, they're living in a land of deep darkness. The Hebrew word that's used there is the same one that's used in verse 23, or Psalm 23, where it, where it talks about the valley of the shadow of death. That's the people that, that's the present experience of the people that he is speaking to. And in order to understand uh, their current experience, you really don't have to look very far. You could go back a couple of chapters to Isaiah chapter 7, where Isaiah is in a conversation with, uh, with Judah's king, Ahaz. You get, get an idea of what their life looked like. You can, you can look at the historical account of, uh, of what life was like in, uh, in Second Kings. And if you do, what you'll find is that this was not a hopeful time if you were a Judean. I mean, the international scene was fraught with difficulty. They were powerful enemies growing and moving on every side of them. In fact, these are the people that are going to witness their sister kingdom, Israel, to the north get invaded and taken captive, exiled. They're going to witness that. And if the international scene was dark, the domestic scene wasn't really much better. That despite some lingering prosperity from the glory days of King David and King Solomon, the kingdom was in a state of steady decline. It was a shrinking kingdom. It was a declining kingdom. One commentator described it this way. He said that wealth was concentrated in the hands of a few and justice was bought and sold. And while religious observance continued, it could no longer conceal the rot that was hidden underneath. It was a description of what life was like. And, and, and these, the, for these people, this is what I want you to see. For these people, the, the darkness, the deep darkness, it was very real. It was very real and it was very close. And they came by, they came by this honestly. And Isaiah, what he's trying to say, he's making a promise of hope. He is saying that despite what you see and despite what you experience, despite what you feel, that's not the whole truth. But it's not even the fundamental truth. But the fundamental truth is that God is authoring a future reality amongst them. He says there come a time when there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. He says that though you walk in darkness, you have seen a great light. And did you notice that, that, that Isaiah is really interesting? He's using um, past tense verbs to describe their present reality. 
And he's using present tense verbs to describe their future reality. And it, it can get a little confusing when you read that. It's like, what are you doing? Actually, it, it's pretty common in prophetic language. And what he's doing is he's building the case that this hope of a future reality is so real. That it's so certain that the future is written as if it's already happened. That the decision has been made. That the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. The darkness has an expiration date. It's the promise of hope that he's giving him. Isaiah's first goal. This is what I want to help you. I just want you to absorb this. That Isaiah's first goal is to convince God's people that the promise of hope is the fundamental shape of our lives. Despite the impulse for despair. Or despite the, 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 uh, despite the, the call to fear. Or despite cynicism that things will just never get better. Those are not Christian virtues. We are people of hope. And we're governed under the promise of hope. And that's what Isaiah offers. And then he, then he goes forward and actually puts a little meat on the bone. He describes for us the vision of hope that God will accomplish in their midst. The first vision of hope that he offers, it describes comprehensive joy. It was hinted at when he mentioned in the first verse, he talked about Galilee of the nations. That's a big deal. Uh, In in verse 3, it says that he's multiplying the nations. He's saying one day God's people will be growing. There won't be a declining, shrinking kingdom. There will be the envy of their neighbors. In fact, they will grow by neighbors coming and getting absorbed into their kingdom. And then, did you notice that he mentions joy in verse 3 several times? He says, you have increased its joy, that they rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. This This is joy in all, it's a comprehensive joy. Joy in all seasons, joy despite circumstances, joy against every sort of adversity, comprehensive joy. And then what he does is he describes global peace. This is the thing we long for, right? He describes a global peace. He says, every boot of the tramping warrior, every garment rolled in blood will be burned as, for the fu- as fuel for the fire. What he's describing, the tools of war will be destroyed. And it's really interesting. He's obviously describing the end of violence, but there's, there's more to it than that. Because if, if you read this, the words that are used to describe To describe these tools of war aren't actually Hebrew words. You won't find them anywhere else in the Old Testament. And what they are are actually foreign loan words. They're Egyptian words. They're Aramaic or Assyrian words. And what he is saying is that um, these carefully chosen words are describing the weapons of their enemies. And what he's doing is, is, is he's expressing the breaking of an alien power which has systematically oppressed God's people. That's what he's talking about. One author put it this way. He said that every mechanism for tyranny will one day go into the bonfire of God's grace. Now you might say, hey, I see deliverance here. That's pretty obvious. I see freedom from oppression. I see hope. I'm seeing all these things. I'm with you. But why are you calling this grace? How in the world could this be grace? Where are you seeing grace in this passage? 
Well, I'll tell you, because you see God doing something for his people that they can't do for themselves. What we have here is grace is the light that pierces the darkness, that the story of God's working in the world is the triumph of grace. A couple months ago, I came across a story about a Turkish man. I think it's real, okay? It was in the BBC, so... But it's about a Turkish man who was hanging out with his friends. He left his family to hang out with his friends for an evening, and he wandered into a forest, and he didn't come back. His wife became worried about him. She called his friends. They didn't know where he was. They eventually alerted the authorities, and uh, they dispatched search parties to the forest looking for this Turkish man. And uh, at some point, he came across the search parties, uh, didn't realize that they were looking for him and actually joined in in the search for who knows what. And that this went on for several hours, okay, before he realized, oh, I'm here. Like, this is me. He was interviewed later, and uh, he said, please don't tell my dad about this. He's going to kill me. In Turkish, I think. But I kept wondering how often sometimes life feels this way. That we're, we're wandering along. That we're just trying to do the best we can. Serve wherever we can, help out wherever we can, without realizing that we're the ones that are actually lost. Listen, the promise of light coming into the darkness is only sweet to us if we know our need of it. And we, like, we can spend our lives completely devoted to good things. And we can give ourselves to, ourselves to good things, bringing life into our work, bringing life into our neighborhoods and our very own homes, to our families. We can, we, can, we can do extraordinary things just seeking to bless our city, and that's good. We should. That, 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 that people should know that, that God's people are about that work. But it's very hard to do that without feeling like accomplishing an ultimate good or fixing it. Like fixing everything can just feel even farther away once we start, once we start working on these things, right? And actually, when we work, it can feel so futile that there is a darkness in our world that's beyond our ability to resolve. And if that's true of our world, it's also true of our hearts, isn't it? Like there's no amount of self-improvement that I can set about that really is going to fix what's going on in here. That as, as much as I hate it, I can still find new ways to be selfish or to hurt people. That there's something in here that's going to need something else to come in. It's going to need something else to come in and fix it because it's beyond my ability to resolve. That if the darkness is one day going to be resolved, it's going to take some, someone else helping me. You know what it's going to take? It's going to take grace. God doing something to me, for me, to me, that's beyond my ability to do. And this vision of hope... What I want you to see, it's so hopeful because it is the story of the triumph of grace. It's the story of God giving his people something they couldn't do for themselves. It's the thing that holds us. And then after giving us a vision of hope, he starts to talk about the means of this hope. And what we see here is not just that we have a deliverance coming, but that there's actually a deliverer. 
But this deliverance is coming in the form of a person. And this is a person who confounds, like in every way. It's like God is just trying to mess with the powers of the world. And the things that we look to as powerful. Because he comes as someone who confounds. He comes as a child. Look at verse 6. For to us a child is born. A son is given. It's that God's answer to everything that looks to harm. Everything that makes us afraid. Everything that causes us to fear, to, uh, to fear will be defeated by the, by the arrival of a mere child. But yet this is not no ordinary child. Not no ordinary child. This ain't no ordinary child. This child's a picture of wisdom because he's a wonderful counselor. This child's a picture of divine strength for he is mighty God. This child has a loving concern for the helpless for he is an everlasting father. And this child brings peace for he is the prince of peace. And Jesus confounds because this is a deliverer who comes to us in the most confusing way, the most unexpected way. Because it's in Jesus, what we see is that uh, even in weakness, it confounds the powers of the world. In, in Jesus, what we see is that it, what seems like foolishness to us confounds what looks like wisdom in this world. One person put it this way, say that God's answer to the bullies swaggering through history is not to become an even bigger bully. But his answer is Jesus. And nowhere do we see this more clearly than when we look at the cross. Because it's there what we see is that Jesus is enduring the, most, the punishment from the most powerful empire. It looks like he is doing battle and falling to things that look like they're more powerful than him. And if we're not careful, he, looks, he can look like a frail victim about to about to endure another injustice written into the travails of history. And it's even in his death that we see his greatest victory. That even as he receives his death, he rises again and reveals himself as king. He's a person who confounds. And when we see that he rises as king, we see that his rule is eternal. That this king comes and we never have to look for another one ever again. Verse 7. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. From this time forth and forevermore. And this might be the best part. That his kingdom is ever expanding. That our hope is stamped with this eternal decree that there will come a time when the rule of darkness in our world and in our hearts is overthrown forever. Why? Because darkness has an expiration date. Because the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. This will happen because God wants it to happen. It's the passionate commitment of his very character. And so as we enter Advent together, it's a time to remember darkness. It is. That we do this very counterintuitive, very countercultural thing. That this season leading up to Christmas is actually a season where we wait. We sit in darkness. And, and we remember our need for Jesus. Jesus is only a treasure to us if we understand our need of him. And so Advent is a time where we sit together, we remember together, we look forward together to when Jesus actually came. And we remember together that Jesus will come again. 
that he is our strength and our consolation, that he is the hope of all the earth, that he is the joy of every loving heart. When I was researching this hymn, I came across this sweet little story about a young chaplain who was overseas for a few for a few years, goodness gracious, for a few months, away from his young family. He was overseas in Geneva uh, studying things. It sounds glorious, doesn't it? So... <laughs> But, uh, but he was away from his family for a long time. He really missed them. He was eager to come back. They missed him. And uh, so he's starting to travel back. And uh, he's talking to his wife on the phone at an airport when his four-year-old son gets on the phone. And you know what his four-year-old son says? He describes it as a sigh, asking, Daddy, when am I going to be where you are? That's the sigh of a loving son eager to see his dad back home again, but it's also the sigh of the Christian waiting for Jesus to return to us. When am I going to be where you are? When are you going to be where we are? And it's the sigh of longing that we express when we sing this hymn together like we're going to do in just a minute. And it's the sigh of hope that our King is coming and there will come a day when all things will be made new. Amen. Thanks be to God. Let me pray. Lord, sustain us in hope. Make us a people of hope. Make us a people proud to hope. And Lord, would you work in our spirits and make hope even more reasonable to us. And I pray that you would help us, that you would encourage us during this time. It would hold us in hope as we wait for Jesus to come back. Thank you, Jesus, for all you did for us. Thank you for being the light that pierces the darkness. And thank you, God, for your grace. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.